Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Everybody. My name is Christine Doherty. Uh, I'm a counsel at Goodwin Proctor. I'm very happy to be here today. Um, and I, so we're going to talk about uh, FDIC, FDIC deposit insurance, uh, kind of following the Silicon Valley Bank failure earlier this year, some lessons learned. Um, just a little bit about my background. I started off at Goodwin Proctor uh, a little bit over 20 years ago, doing a lot of bank regulatory work, both in new bank formations. Um, and we did a lot of bank M&A work as well as work related to internal controls and systems. Um, I was at State Street for about five years. We, or nay, uh, there's a U.S. bank regulatory group at State Street um, focused primarily on, again, internal controls and kind of compliance with U.S. laws and regulations um, and also a lot of acquisition work. And then I was at uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston for about 10 years working on, I was responsible for providing legal support to our supervision regulation credit function, um, which included the bank examiners from the smallest banks in New England to the largest banks, including State Street, which is a, a GCIV, um, as well as uh, bank applications, discount window function, emergency lending facilities, um, and we did a lot of work on financial stability coming out of the crisis. Um, but I'm really happy to be here with everybody today. I hope you'll ask questions um, and feel comfortable doing that. And you can either do it, obviously, during the, the time that I'm talking um, or afterwards. And also, obviously, if there's anything that comes up, um, please feel free to reach out to me after the session. Um, so in terms of the, the scope of things that we're going to cover, we'll talk a little bit about why we're here today and kind of what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, signature and also First Republic, a little bit about the early history of the, the FDI Act, which I think is helpful. Um, we'll kind of dig into some of the, the nuts and bolts of what is a deposit, what's an insured deposit, what's an insured depository institution, how much is insured, how do you think about or figure out how much is it insured. Um, we'll talk about something called pass-through coverage. We'll also talk about some of the, the real-world implications for some, basically for, for businesses coming out of the market disruption in March and what were some of the issues that people were really concerned about then from a kind of more practical business perspective. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit about what the regulators did in response in March, um, both in the kind of very immediate term and then also in the medium term. Um, and then at the end, we'll, we'll kind of circ or kind of round out the discussion by talking about different options or some of the things that people are thinking about in terms of deposit insurance reform, um, both in terms of kind of what some of the headwinds are, some of the, the kind of environmental circumstances people need to think about and how they've changed even from 2008 um, and certainly from 1933 when the FDIC was formed. Um, and then also, what are some of the policy considerations that people might want to take into account when they're thinking about which options to choose? Um, so we will go to the next slide. Um, so as we talked about, and again, I'm sure this is maybe fresh on people's minds, or at least certainly kind of certainly kind of aware of um, the on March 10, 2023, the California Department of Financial uh, Protection and Innovation found that Silicon Valley Bank was insolvent, and it placed it into receivership. And typically, what happens is the state authority, so Silicon Valley Bank was a state member bank, it, so it was formed under California law. It actually, its primary regulator was the Federal Reserve. Um, but what happens is the in an insolvency, typically for state chartered institution, the state will name the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation as the receiver. Um, and this was a little bit unique in the sense that the action was actually taken midday. Typically, what the FDIC will try to do is it'll actually try to 
uh, put the bank into receivership at the close of business, usually on a Friday, um, which gives people a little bit of breathing room over the weekend and then make sure that the business day is closed out for the bank. Um, at the time of Silicon Valley Bank's failure, so again, just the, the highlight there is just that it was kind of a, an unusual and messy failure of a bank, um, which the FDIC, FDIC typically tries to avoid. Um, so at the time of its failure, uh, the parent bank holding company, Silicon or SVB Financial Group, was the 18th largest bank holding company in the country by consolidated assets. It had about 200, 211 billion assets as of the end of 2022. Um, also, as of the end of 2022, by one measure, approximately 93.8% of Silicon Valley Bank's deposits were uninsured. Um, and this has gotten a lot of press, but I think it's it's important to mention, which is that, you know, you had a lot of depositors with very large balances up to, you know, to the typical, you know, the rules, $250,000 of deposit insurance per writing capacity. Um, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but you had people with, you know, balances significantly above that. And was, again, just overall, a lot of depositors had uninsured balances of significant amounts. Um, on, or on Thursday, March 9, depositors initiated withdrawals of approximately $42 billion. On March 10, uh, the California found that due to the precipitous withdrawal, SV, or Silicon Valley Bank was incapable of paying its obligations as they came due and the bank was insolvent. And so there was about $42 billion of withdrawals on that Thursday. I think there was over 100, 100 billion of attempted withdrawals on the, on the Friday, basically the day that it failed, or they were also withdrawals that had been submitted Thursday that were kind of still pending and running through on Friday, and they got stopped. Um, on March 10, the FDIC announced that it had created the Deposit Insurance National Bank of Santa Clara and transferred to this institution the insured deposits of Silicon Valley Bank. So going into the Friday, or going into the weekend on Friday, depositors were told that the, basically that uninsured depositors would have or insured depositors would have full access to their deposits no later than Monday morning, which is very typical in a failure. Um, and the FDIC would pay uninsured depositors an advanced dividend the following week, and the future dividend payments would be made to uninsured depositors as the FDIC sold the assets. So basically, the FDIC created a bridge bank. It would, over time, it would sell the assets. It would then use those funds to repay the uninsured depositors, but you wouldn't know the uninsured depositors wouldn't know when they were going to receive or when they would receive payments or how much. Um, and then what happened is, and I'm sure it's kind of again fresh, fresh for everybody. Um, but on Sunday, March 12th, after receiving a recommendation from the boards of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and the Federal Reserve, and after consulting with the president, the secretary, their secretary Yellen invoked the systemic risk exception. Um and depositors of both Silicon Valley Bank, and at this point, it included Signature Bank as well in New York, were informed that they would have access to all of their deposits starting on Monday, March 13th. Um, and so what had happened was there had, there was a tremendous amount of focus on Silicon Valley Bank over that, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Then what, you know, somewhat a little bit surprisingly, although not entirely, was that Signature Bank was actually also caught up and they actually went in, they were announced um, is be, they're put into receivership on March 12th. They had a significant, also a significant amount of uninsured deposits at as of the end of December or as of the end of 2022, 89.3%. Um, and so again, here what we're really focused on is that you have a lot of people who are concerned about their deposits and whether they're how whether they're basically the question people were asking is, is my money safe? Um, and how could they feel comfortable that it was safe or understand what was going to happen? Um, so a little bit of history just on the FDIC on the, the FDIC deposit insurance. So the FDIC was actually originally created in 
under the Banking Act of 1933, coming out of their connection with the Great Depression, there were number many, many, many bank failures at that point um, in the early 19, late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, federal deposit insurance became effective January 1, 1934. There actually had been predecessor schemes as well. We don't cover those here, um, but there's some information and some links at the end of the presentation that have really interesting histories um, if you want to learn more about some of the predecessor schemes or what brought about the creation of the FDI Act in 33 or the FDIC in 33. Um, the initial amount was set up at $2,500 in coverage. Um, it had almost an immediate effect in restoring public confidence and stability in the banking system, which is really kind of the purpose of deposit insurance. Um, you, I mean, one, you want to make sure that people are are not basically that they don't lose their money, but also part of it is that the banking system relies on kind of participation by many individuals really trusting the system. And it also relies on it working consistently and consistent with people's expectations. And so public confidence is extremely important in, in, facilitating, in facilitating stability. Um, and actually in 1934, there were only nine bank failures as compared to 9,000 um, in the preceding four years. In June 1934, Congress raised the coverage, uh, the insurance coverage to 5,000. Um, and then with the passage of the Banking Act of 1935, the FDIC became permanent. The $5,000 limit was retained. Um, and it's interesting, comparing to Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, at the time, the FDIC insured 98% of depositors. Now, uh, there were... Anyway. We won't break that down in terms of how that how that gets distributed, but it was a significant portion of the population that was actually covered with the five thousand dollar limit. Um, and then in 1950, so we typically, and you'll see this referred to later in the presentation, we'll talk about the FDI Act or the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. It was actually the Federal Deposit Insurance Act in 1950. It was adopted in September of 1950, um, and it had actually. This may be interesting only to me, um, but the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the scheme was actually originally included in the Federal Reserve Act, and it was actually moved into its own separate stat, its own separate statute, and codified separately. Um, and so the relevant the relevant sections, though, that you'll look at are 12 U.S.C. 1811, um, and then following, and then the FDIC's regulations in pertinent part are 12 CFR Part 330, which is deposit insurance coverage, and there are also links at the back. Um, one of the things that's kind of that I came across when I was getting ready for the presentation was an interesting chart, um, and it reflects some of the the impact of inflation on deposit insurance coverage. Um, so the what's referred to as the SMDIA or the Standard Maximum Deposit Insurance Amount has been increased seven times since 1934. And actually, this chart, although it's tiny, it actually shows you the times when it was increased. Um, and then the biggest increase or the kind of the large dollar increase came in, at least on a permanent basis, in 2010 with the Dodd-Frank Act, when it went from $100,000 up to $250,000, which is the current amount today. Um, but it's interesting because it shows you the chart, shows kind of a comparison of real value or the real value of deposit insurance. It's fluctuated over time and decreased in recent years, but it also has decreased basically with inflation. And this chart here, actually, because you, you know, you'll see in 2010, the dollar value of the deposit insurance matches what the, the real dollar value is as of 2008. But then over time, as the dollar buys less, the coverage in some ways is less effective because you're holding more deposits um, than you might have been in 2008 or 2010 because your purchasing power is lower. We can talk more about that. Um, but the the important point here is that basically the kind of the real dollar value decreases over time, or at least with inflation. And this chart only goes through, I think, 2020, which is obviously we've seen a significant inflationary environment post-2020. 
Um, so the next question we'll get to is what is a deposit? Uh, when is it insured and by how much? Um, so I will say the definition of deposit is in this, the FDI Act is a lot longer than what's here, but I wanted to pull out some of the most relevant pieces of information. Um, so deposit is the unpaid balance of money or its equivalent received or held by a bank or savings association in the usual course of business and for which it has given or is obligated to give credit, either conditionally or unconditionally. Uh, to a commercial checking saving time or time account, or which is evidenced by a certificate of deposit. So we all think about you've got a deposit account, for example, a checking account, and you give your money to the bank and you have the expectation that you're going to be able to have the return of funds. Um, and that's a demand deposit account. You can read your expectation and the, the agreement that you have with the bank is that they'll return them at any time on your demand. Um, some deposits are, are conditional in the sense, for example, a certificate of deposit might be it might actually not mature for six months or some period of time. So your receipt of the funds is conditional. Um, the most important thing to take away here to some extent is you're all familiar with the deposit, but to think about it, a deposit is a basically you are a creditor of the bank and they are your debtor. And they are tip in most cases, but not in all. They are basically an you're basically you're an unsecured creditor. Now you fall above other unsecured creditors in the event of the receivership of a bank, but you're still unsecured. Some of the examples that are a little bit different are, for example, if you're a state. So for example, the state of New York, if it had deposits with a bank, those would be collateralized. Um, and then we kind of get into the, the web of definitions. A bank is any national bank or state bank. So a national bank is formed under the National Bank Act. A state bank is formed under state law. Um, I don't read all of these, but they're all different kinds of variations on what a state bank can be called. And then the state bank is obviously any of the you know, 50 United States, District of Columbia, any territory in the United States, Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa, uh, Trust Territory, Pacific Islands, Virgin Islands, and the Northern Mariana Islands. Um, so it's not just the 50 United, kind of 50, the 50 actually United States that are included in the definition of state. Um, an insured deposit, and it's there are certain exceptions which we won't get into, is the net amount due to any depositor for deposits in an insured depository institution. Um, but it's also taking into account how you actually, what the ownership category is, where the how the account is held. And again, we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, and then you can have uninsured deposits. And uninsured deposits is basically the amount that you have of a deposit that's in excess of the deposit insurance coverage. Um, we also just to, write, to kind of carry around out the definitions. We've also talked about, you'll see reference to an insured depository institution, which is just a bank or savings association that has been basically approved pursuant to the FDIC to, and the FDI Act to receive or to have FDIC insured deposits. Um, there are, it is unusual, but there are some banks in the U.S. that actually accept uninsured deposits and themselves are uninsured. Again, not many. Um, Okay, so continuing on, uh, deposits held at the F at an FDIC insured depository institution are insured up to $250,000 per depositor for deposits held in what's referred to as the same right and capacity. So basically in the same on the same legal basis. Um, deposits held by a depositor in a particular ownership category, whether in, and you'll see actually on the right, there are different, the, four, the kind of the different ownership categories or the, kind of the general categories. Um, deposits that are held by a depositor in a particular ownership category, whether in one account or multiple accounts, are aggregated and insured up to the SMDIA 
for that category. So if I have two bank accounts at Bank of America in my name, those are both aggregated together. Even if I have 250,000 in one and 250,000 in the other, if they're both just under my name, it's total of $250,000 in coverage. Um, different legal entities, including affiliates, are generally considered separate depositors as long as they engage in what's referred to as an independent activity, meaning the entity is operated primarily for some purpose other than to, to increase deposit insurance. So it has to be legitimate. The FDIC doesn't want people kind of creating separate entities simply for the purposes of maximizing or increasing deposit coverage. Um, the ability of depositors to open accounts under multiple ownership categories permits them to access deposit insurance coverage above $250,000 at a single bank. So if I have $250,000 in an account at Bank of America in my name, and I open up a separate one with my husband, that will be insured separately from the, the account that's held in my name alone. Um, and I will say there's also... It can get complicated, especially when we're talking about things like retirement accounts or trusts. But the listed at the end of the presentation is actually a, a link to uh, the FDIC has something called ED, which actually is a nice tool for helping people figure out what the deposit insurance coverage is that they have. Uh, are there jurisdictional limits on FDIC deposit insurance? So deposit insurance is not limited to U.S. citizens or residents. Any person or entity maintaining a deposit in an insured depository institution, as those terms have been defined above, receives FDIC deposit insurance as provided under the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. Um, but there are some, some important things to keep in mind. Deposits carried on the books and records of a foreign office of a U.S. bank. So, for example, if I put my money in the London branch of, of Bank of America, um, including those that are payable in the U.S. or at a foreign at, or at a foreign office are not FDIC insured. So even if the con the deposit agreement says that I can actually, if they're booked to their, I made the deposit at the, the London branch of Bank of America, if my deposit agreement says that I can actually request payment here, that doesn't make them or doesn't mean that they're insured. Um, deposits at a foreign subsidiary of a U.S. bank are not deposits of the U.S. bank for any purpose. So, for example, if I make a deposit at Bank of America's London or their 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 UK bank, those are not insured. They're not deposits, and therefore they're not insured. Um, and deposits solely payable at a foreign office are not FDIC insured, and they're also not considered deposits of the bank. So there's an important distinction between is something a deposit or not a deposit? If it's a deposit, is it insured or is it not insured? So here, for example, if I make a deposit at Bank of America's London branch, um, and they're only payable in London, they're not payable here, they're not considered deposits. And there's something, we don't spend that much time on it here, but there's something called the National Depositor Preference Scheme. And that basically says that in the resolution proceeding, basically the administrative resolution of a failed bank, who gets paid first? And as, as you'll recall, I mentioned that depositors are general creditors of the bank. They're unsecured. But amongst those general creditors, insured depositors get paid. They'll always get paid because the FDIC will cut, will, will make sure that they do, then you have a kind of another, you have a, a, a waterfall in terms of who gets the assets of the failed bank after that. And so if you're a depositor, but not an insured depositor, you come ahead of, of other general unsecured creditors, including people who hold something that's not actually considered a deposit. Um, the next thing we'll talk about, which has come up a lot, is the concept of pass-through coverage. So I can have a coverage because I have a deposit account in my name. I can also have coverage in a kind of a, a, under different structures. 
Um, and so pass-through deposit coverage covers funds that are in deposits account, deposit accounts at an insured depository institution where their funds are owned by a principal, say me, and held by a nominal depositor, someone basically in a fiduciary capacity, so an agent acting on my behalf. Um, structures that provide pass-through coverage involving a nominal depositor acting acting as an agent for a cust or as agent or custodian for a principal are commonly employed in a variety of different circumstances. So you might see them in fintech partnerships where the fintech company acts as the agent for its customers, placing deposits in a variety of locations or with a variety of banks. Um, deposit placement programs where customers' relationship bank places deposits at a kind of a group of other insured depository institutions for the purposes of maximizing deposit insurance. So if I have $500,000 and I keep $250,000 in my account at Bank of America and I want to participate in one of these other programs, I may actually be able to, through Bank of America, have my funds placed at another insured institute or insured bank, in which case I would get $500,000 of deposit insurance coverage. And the, the programs are actually set up to give significantly higher coverage than that. Um, you can also have something like a payroll processing service uh, where funds are transferred from an employer to an account established for the benefit of the pay payroll company's customers. Um, and this became a particular issue actually in March because a lot of companies will, funds may transfer to the payroll processor a couple of days before payroll is supposed to be made. Um, and if the payroll processor had an account at the failed bank, then people had exposure to the failed bank, even though they may not have known that or may not have kind of had, had Silicon Valley Bank, for example, as their primary bank. Um, and then you can have deposit suite programs used by broker dealers. So we'll talk a little bit about what's needed for effective pass-through coverage. This is significant from the FDIC's perspective. So the arrangements need to be structured um, and, and basically appropriately structured. It's critical to ensuring, which is critical to ensuring the availability of pass-through coverage. Um, so for the accounts to work, the account records, the agency or custodial relationship has to be expressly disclosed on the deposit account records of the depository bank. So basically my bank, um, the, re or the records maintained by either the depository bank, the fiduciary or an authorized third party on behalf of the depositor must identify the actual owner or owners of the funds in the account and their respective ownership interests. So if a bank is taking deposits, it has to make sure that it has recorded appropriately the ownership or somebody else in the chain has to make sure that that's appropriately recorded. The records must be maintained in good faith in the regular course of business. Deposit accounts where there are multiple levels of fiduciary relationship, the existence of each and every level of fiduciary relationship must be disclosed in the relevant records. And this is really because, among other things, you want to make sure that the, the ownership is clear and that the, the, the records identify who the actual legal owner of the funds is. Um, and the FDIC will presume that the deposit, the deposited funds are actually owned in the manner indicated in the deposit account records of the depository institution. At the same time, if the FDIC has reason to believe that the depository accounts or the depository bank's account records misrepresent the actual ownership of the funds in a way that increases deposit insurance coverage, the FDIC may claim, may, uh, may, basically assert that those are there's a misrepresentation um, and it may decline to to pay the claim the deposit insurance claims. And so one of the things to keep in mind is that what from the FDIC's perspective, it wants an orderly process, but it's also its objective is to to preserve the deposit insurance fund or to to make sure that the deposit insurance fund, which is the fund set aside for the payment of of 
basically the repayment of insured deposits where there's the the failed bank can't um the it's the obligation of the fdic or its responsibility to be prudent with that um, and not to pay out funds that aren't entitled to deposit insurance um the agency relationship agreement. So the agent or custody, the agent or custodial relationship must be a bona fide agency relationship. The agreement with the principal should explicitly state or designate the nominal depositor as the principal's agent or custodian for purposes of placing and holding deposits and indicate that those relationships will be reflected on the records of the depository bank. So again, you want it to be clear that the structure should be strong and clear that in my agreement with my agent, then I'm in fact authorizing this as my agent to put my to take my funds or to hold my funds. Um, the next one, Let's see. Uh, continuing on in terms of the, the kind of structuring for pass through coverage, uh, the structures are arranged. So again, kind of critical for pass-through coverage, deposit terms and ownership funds. And this is consistent with what we talked about before, but the funds actually have to be owned by the principal um, and not the nominal depositor. And so how do you get comfortable that the principal, so again, me in this case, how do you get comfortable that I really am the owner of those funds? Um, and going back to law school and the bundle of sticks, so the requirement is not likely to be satisfied if the terms of the deposit account. So, for example, the interest rate, the maturity date offered to me do not match the terms of the deposit account offered to the offered by the depository bank. So really what you want to make sure is that I'm really getting all of the benefits of the deposit or the, the deposit account that the depository bank is giving. So if the depository bank is paying a higher rate of interest, but I'm actually receiving a lower rate of interest, that can be problematic. Um, because it looks like then I don't really own the funds because I don't get the bet all of the full benefits of those funds, including the full payment of interest. Um, the terms of the agreement between the parties may not create independent obligations that would create a debtor-creditor relationship between the agent and the principal. And again, here, they're supposed to be my agent. They're not supposed to be kind of enacting in that capacity. The debtor-creditor relationship is established with the bank, not the agent. Uh, if the depositor meets requirements of rest through coverage, then the amount the FDIC the amount of FDIC deposit insurance will be based on the ownership capacity. So again, going back, is the is the account kind of established for me? Is the account established for myself and my husband? Um, how is it titled? And then what we'll talk about as well here are some of the um, some of the real world kind of impacts or things that we saw people considering in March of 2023. Um, and one of the things that people spent a lot of time talking about, I think I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but the kind of asking, are my is my money safe? Um, and also, are there other options? So if I had a large deposit with the bank in excess of deposit insurance, are there other places that I can put where I can put my funds, especially in March and April, people were very, you know, things have, have calmed down, but people, you know, bit, but people are very concerned about the stability of the banking system. And so the thought was, how can I put my money or where, what are my options for putting my money where I can get generally ready access to it, but I don't have the same kind of counterparty credit risk? to the bank that I had if I had large uninsured deposits. Um, and, you know, it's also, to, it's important to keep in mind is that, you know, when the banking system works, it works well. And most people aren't checking the financial, the financial condition of their bank on a quarterly basis. Um, so companies don't always assess the long-term financial viability of the banks that hold their money or provide other critical financial services. Um, 
And certainly over, as I was alluding to, over the second week in March, we saw countless companies that had to grapple with the counterparty risks as they worried about, for example, how to make payroll because um, their funds weren't available, but they still had continuing obligations to their employees, for example. And so what do you do in a case where your funds are basically tied up? And again, going into that, if you recall, going into that weekend from March 10th, 11th, 12th, People knew that they would get $250,000, but if they had had deposits in excess of that, they didn't know when the distributions were going to be made or how much. Um, so managing cash to ensure liquidity and capital preservation was kind of a very was critical for the viability of many institutions or many companies. Um, and then we'll talk a little bit below about some of the options companies consider to manage their cash effectively, particularly, again, in an uncertain environment, is particularly for the banking system. Um, so one is to adopt, first thing is to think about adopting a cash management and investment policy and updating it regularly. Um, so what that does is it allows people to think about how much cash they need in the short term or to meet most of their kind of overall planning horizon, how much cash they need, and then where they want to make, where they want to put it so that they have readily, ready access to it. Um, it also allows them to think about what they want to do with cash that they don't need over their planning horizon. So say six, 12, nine, you know, or six, six, nine, 12 months, something like that. Um, so that there's a reasonable rate of return that they can get. But again, balancing their interest in a reasonable rate of return with preservation of capital. Um, and part of this goes to also the importance for lots of companies is just from a governance perspective to think about who makes those decisions, who needs to be aware of those risks. Um, and who needs to approve, again, kind of who needs to approve what risk the company is taking and it both in kind of what it's keeping liquid and then what it's investing in other things and also under just purely understanding what those investments look like. Um, one of the things we saw people think about was maintaining active banking relationships. And again, we'll get to this a little bit at the end of the presentation, um, but it can take time to set up a new banking relationship. Um, and so even if people were able to withdraw their funds from Silicon Valley Bank, for example, they might not have another bank where they could put their funds. Um, let's see. The other thing to keep in mind that people are kind of juggling with is that if they had funds on deposit at a bank, they might have had a, it coupled with a lending relationship. And sometimes there might be covenants that would actually preclude them from taking all of their deposits out. So people were thinking about what constraints there were in moving or if in trying to, to readjust their, their funds in different places to reduce credit party or, or counterparty credit risk. Um, let's see. Think, again, people thinking about kind of, we talked about this a little bit, but how to limit the amount of capital at risk at the bank. Um, you know, the other thing is that when you make other investments, oftentimes you'll need either a brokerage or custodial relationship in place to make other investments. Um, and so thinking about if you don't just have a bank relationship or deposits at the bank, what other finance, what other relationship with financial institutions do you need? Um, the other thing people are thinking about is also being mindful of maturities. So for example, if you want cash available over a particular period, you might ladder your investments. So you might ladder your treasury investments, for example. So they mature at different frequencies or they mature kind of over time to match what your expected cash flow needs are. Um, and we alluded to this a little bit earlier when we talked about the um, the payroll servicers, but also thinking about kind of third-party risks. So who else do you do business with? Where are you relying on them to either make payment to you or where, for example, in the, the, the payment service process, payment servicer category, where are you using or giving them funds that are supposed to meet, used to be meet your own obligations? And then just kind of continuing with the theme of limiting capital at risk, um, cash management options, 
there are you know, a number that people kind of were interested in that we spent a, or a number that people are interested in. Um, so one we referred to earlier in the context of the, the um, pass-through coverage, but deposit placement programs were basically funds in excess of $250,000 are divided up and spread out to a number of other FDIC-insured institutions. And again, the purpose there is each, each other institution only gets up to $250,000, but the purpose there is to basically increase the total amount of deposit insurance coverage you've got. Um, there are also money market mutual fund sweeps where funds are moved uh, over and usually over an excess target amount or balance amount or an excess amount that's set at their bank. So, for example, if I have $500,000, I might keep $200,000 in my account and I might say I want the excess over $200,000 swept into a money, mar money market mutual fund. Um, and what happens there is that it, it, there's a little bit of a, a timing delay, but it over the basically I, the money is swept into a money market mutual fund share. So shares are purchased. Um, they're not necessarily titled in my name, but basically it's clear from the again from the, the records that they're held by intermediaries for my benefit. And so those are treated as my assets. But but they're not exposures to the credit of the bank. Um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is money market deposit accounts are different from money market or money market savings accounts are different from money market mutual funds. So the money market deposit accounts, for example, are actually still deposit accounts so that those continue as exposures to the bank. Um, you know, something else to keep in mind, which is that money market mutual funds in the 2008 crisis, actually, there were significant redemptions from those. There's a lot of work done post-crisis to improve um, improve concerns people had and the reasons that people ran from those. Basically, there's a there's kind of a first mover advantage, which is depending on when you you redeem out of the fund. Um, you can get full value or you can get kind of the full, you basically, you don't, you may not necessarily have a reduction in the net asset value or the amount that you get for the redemption. Um, whereas over time, for those who stay in, they may actually realize greater losses, but a topic for a different day. Um, and then bank customers also use repo sweeps to invest funds overnight in government securities. The funds are swept into, re the funds swept into repos are generally swept back the following morning. So there you do actually have exposure to the bank intraday as opposed to the money market mutual funds where your exposure may be in the day that your funds are being swept over, the day or two that your funds are being swept into the mutual fund, but they don't come back to your bank account every day. Um, and the other option with these are few and far between, but Massachusetts has something called the Depositors Insurance Fund. So basically there are excess deposit insurance schemes that are available, but again, they're very limited. Um, some caveats, the list is not complete. The list is not complete. It's not an endorsement of any product. Um, the terms of the products should be reviewed by counsel and all of the investments as we've kind of touched on a little bit, all of the different investment options carry risk. Uh, regulatory, so I think actually regulatory responses to recent market disruption, and these are selected and minimal. Um, so there's many, many other things that the regulators have done in response. Um, but in the, we talked about this a little bit, kind of the first is just to, to separate it out into kind of immediate, medium term, and then we don't touch on or touch on a little bit in the next couple of slides is longer term responses. Um, so the immediate response to ease market disruption, so we'd reference this at the beginning of the, the discussion, but the invocation of the systemic risk exception to least cost resolution. So basically what the regulators came out with on the, and they wanted to do this obviously before the opening of business in Asia um, on Sunday night, was they came out saying that they had invoked the systemic risk exception, which basically allowed them to make whole deposits all depositors, whether they had insured or uninsured deposits at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. 
And the reason it's referred to as an exception is because there is a part of the, the FDI Act includes a provision that requires the FDIC to resolve a failed bank at, elite, at the least cost to the deposit insurance fund. And then there's an exception when that may not be the right thing to do. And so the expectation is there may actually be more cost to the deposit insurance fund, but there is an expectation that it's appropriate for basically for taxpayer funds ultimately. Um, to be of it, to be used because if you don't do that, you may reduce the basically. If you don't do that, you may have serious adverse effects on the economic conditions or financial stability. Um, and so the idea is that basically the FDIC has the ability to take other actions, um, for example, paying out on the uninsured depositors um, as a way of basically trying to stem further financial contagion or as to try to maintain way try to maintain or try a way to try to maintain financial stability. Um, the other things, and again, there are multiple things that the regulators did. Um, one of the other things was the establishment of the bank term funding program under Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act. And so that's available. The Federal Reserve has the ability in unusual and exigent circumstances to make loans to uh, individuals, partnerships, corporations. It can include banks, but it can include bank holding companies. Um, to as a, in basically as long as it's part of a kind of a broad-based program or lending program, so it can't be used post dodd Frank. It can't be used to provide funding to just one institution, for example. Um, and so one of the issues that Silicon Valley Bank ran into and other banks as well had was in the kind of the rising interest rate environment. They had a number of they had a number of uh, investments that they had made where they were had for treasuries and other things, for example, which are certainly people weren't worried about the credit quality, but at the same time. Um, they're paying a much lower rate of interest, um, whereas in a rising interest rate environment, they're receiving a lower rate of interest on their investments. They're paying out a higher rate of interest on their deposits, for example, or other other depositors are basically moving to other institutions um, to try to basically to try to get a higher rate of interest. And again, in an inflationary, inflationary environment, trying to get a higher rate of interest that caused deposit losses. But also if they were to actually sell the, the securities that they held, they would actually sell them at a loss or realize them at a loss. Um, so again, without going into too much in terms of the causes, what the, the bank term funding program did was it actually it allowed banks to pledge their assets and receive kind of receive the mark receive not the market value but the the par value of the assets so it didn't basically they could get kind of full value for them without actually having to sell the assets um and realize the loss and then some of the other kind of medium term responses which you expect kind of after any disruption is supervisory responses um, and so, for example, one of the things that we saw was the interagency policy statement on funding and liquidity risk management, um, and also the importance of contingency plans. So one of the things that Silicon Valley Bank ran into, um, which Signature did as well, was that they actually, even if they had sufficient collateral to borrow from the discount window, they didn't necessarily have sufficient collateral placed to be able to secure that lending. Um, and so... Part of this was also there's a push to have institutions make sure that they have kind of, you know, they have access to the full range of emergency liquidity facilities, including the discount window. Um, 
you know, there are some other things that kind of the, the interagency policy statement calls for, including maintaining actionable contingency funding plans that take into account appropriate range of possible stress scenarios, proactively assessing the stability of their funding and maintaining a broad range of funding sources that can be accessed in adverse circumstances. Um, and then also being aware that operational requirements to obtain funding from contingent sources, including testing access to contingency funding sources on a regular basis. So again, that goes to the point in terms of you may have sufficient collateral, but you've actually got to be able to get it in place with um, the Federal Reserve, the, either the Reserve Banks or in some cases the Federal Home Loan Banks in order to actually be able to borrow quickly. Um, and then the next piece we'll talk about, and again, you've seen the other thing to think about is, you know, there's a lot going on in the, that you'll hear about, but don't necessarily see all the details in terms of kind of increased examination activity with respect to particularly uh, liquidity management. Um, and then also speech. And there's also a lot of, there's the short-term response, and then there's also a lot of speeches and a lot for, by by policymakers, and then also calls for research to help people think more about what are some of the additional lessons learned coming out of this? How do we understand better what happened? And then what are the policy, appropriate policy responses longer term? Um, and then switching a little bit to that, um, some of the things that people are also talking about are kind of different options for FDIC deposit insurance reform. And there are all kinds of variations on this. Um, but you know, one of the things I found useful is the, and the FDIC actually has a, a piece, which is referenced in the next, on the next slide, talking about different, both history on the FDIC deposit insurance, um, and then thinking about, among other things, options for deposit insurance reform. Um, and it talks about, and people, you'll see this a lot in the press, it talks about um, different challenges that we're facing today. And so part of this we saw during kind of the, the the bank run in March of this year was social media kind of, you know, it happened very quickly and really fed the, the way that information moves between people and social media really fed the kind of concern people had about about the banks. Um, and it, it, it kind of amplifies people's emotional responses or their responses to the circumstances that they're seeing. Um, although going back to the 1930s, there's a Frank Capra movie, American Madness, which predeceased or which, which is, which comes before, um, it's a wonderful life that has a, <laughs> so really, if you're, if you're interested, um, it's got a, a you know, fascinating scene of a bank run. And you actually, even in those times, you see how quickly the information moves and gets amplified um, between people resulting in a, a full-on bank run. Um, but it kind of the speed and, and transmission of information. Um, so there's also, you know, we've got a lot of financial technology that's available. It has become easier and easier to open new accounts and to move funds. Um, there's also, there's the interest on reserves, which arguably has also, you know, what some would argue has actually allowed banks to pay higher interest rates, which has led to this kind of continual increasing of the interest rates paid where people reach for yield by moving to another bank. Um, and so what you get are less sticky deposits. And what, you know, again, for Silicon Valley Bank, a lot of it was that you had, you know, fundamental weaknesses, but also concern and the ability to move money quickly, which results in kind of that rapid dissipation of deposits. Um, some of the other things that you'll see are kind of fed now, which is moving to a 24 by 7 by 365 instant payments with final settlement um, between the banks, which means that basically the funds really flow out of the bank very quickly. So again, you can get potentially funds moving much more quickly out of a bank. 
um, than you might have had in, in prior times. And then there's also open banking and Dodd-Frank section uh, 1033, which allows consumers to have a greater access to and control over their financial data. Um, the CFPB is working on rules that increase customer control of their data, um, expected to increase competition by enabling customers to switch providers. But again, what you get then are less sticky deposits. Um, and so more opportunity for people kind of at, at you know early signs to decide that they want to move their funds. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it means that you have to think about, but that has an impact on weight, the way they structure the deposit insurance scheme as well. Because again, going back to the policy purposes, one of the purposes is to continue to protect depositors, but also to protect the confidence in the system as well in the banks. Um, and so then there are a bunch of options that are not, you know, I don't think any of these will be surprising, but they're kind of increasing the deposit insurance coverage amount having unlimited coverage, um, target, you might do targeted increases for certain ownership categories. Um, you might think about an optional excess deposit insurance coverage scheme paid for in a different way than the deposit insurance fund, um, requiring collateral for large deposits. And again, we do that for public entities at this point, but it's typically not permitted actually, or it's often not permitted um, for other depositors. Um, and then the other is also thinking about, are there some limitations? And in some circumstances that you would actually impose on large depositors, for example, that would actually preclude their ability to withdraw their funds on demand. Um, and then in, from a, again, kind of from a policy perspective in thinking about all the different options, um, you can think about things like balancing financial stability, moral hazard, market discipline, depositor discipline. So on the moral hazard perspective, if you have unlimited insurance, maybe you don't spend as much time looking for the right bank or following the bank to make sure you think they're, you know, they're financially, they're kind of financial, their discipline is good. Um, at the same time, as a depositor, it's really hard to exercise reasonable discipline um, or market discipline with respect to your bank, because there's a lot of information that's just not available about the financial conditions of banks. And that's actually a different policy choice. And the, the choice there is that you don't actually want people overreacting and you want a free flow of information between the bank itself and the supervisors. But a lot of people then don't have access to that information. So don't get kind of clear indications or as much indication about the, the financial health of the institution. Um, and then also think thoughts about kind of broader market effects. What does it mean if you make it easier to move funds? How does that affect one one type of institution versus another type of institution? Um, consistency and transparency in the rules, fairness. You know, is it appropriate to charge basically to have some restrictions because you happen to have larger deposits versus smaller deposits? Um, and then also the adequately of the the adequacy of the deposit insurance fund, right? Which is if you insure everything, then you've got a much larger fund with much larger potential exposures. And again, it goes back to the question of how do you actually fund that? Um, and then on the last page, we have some links. And again, if you like the history, I would really recommend the first two links. They're really interesting. Um, the FDIC, the General Principles of Insurance Coverage, is kind of a nice shorthand guide, um, but it's got great regulatory references. Um, the Electronic Deposit Insurance Estimator is also really good if you just want to kind of be able to input your data and see what the deposit insurance coverage is. It's a nice way to also play with it because you're kind of looking to understand how the coverage rules work. Um, bank failures, hopefully won't need to look at these for a while, um, but there is information about bank failures and more about how they get how they get resolved. Um, and then just a kind of shout out for good when we have a bank failure knowledge center, lots of law firms have them. So there are lots of resources that are available, but we had um, tried to give really practical 
advice and information. Um, and you'll see more information, for example, if you want to know about pass-through coverage or if you want to think about cash management options um, and policies that companies might. And then, uh, so I think that's the next is, I don't know if there are any questions people have. Um, but if there are, I would love to able to answer them. And if not, you can uh, email me. My contact information is on the next slide. Um, I'd love to chat. If you ever want to chat about any of these things, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, I don't see any questions. Okay. I'm going to take that as a no. But again, I would love, if you want to reach out, I would love to chat with anybody who's who's joined today. Um, I hope this has been helpful. And I guess that's it. Thank you.